Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I am super excited about today's show. I'm going to be joined by word of mouth marketing expert, Ted Wright, and we're going to explore word of mouth marketing. We're going to talk about what it is, how you can apply it to your business. You're going to love this interview, but first I've got a new discovery for you. Helping you stay alive in a social jungle. Here's this week's survival tip. This week I'm joined by Eric Fisher. Eric, what did you discover? I found OneShot. OneShot is a cool little app for iOS devices that will let you take uh, screenshots that you've taken of text or even images and share them in a unique way on Twitter. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, Do you need to use this app to take the screenshot Uh, or can it be any screenshot that you've taken and it's in your photo library and you can do cool stuff with it? Yeah, any screenshot that you've already taken will show up in this app. So say you're sitting and you're reading a bunch of cool articles and you don't want to tweet them out as you go. Take the screenshots first, then go into OneShot, and every st- single screen capture you've done on your iOS device will show up there ready for you to start working with it. All right, so so let's say that I've taken a screenshot from uh, a, a book that I'm reading and um, I want to highlight a cool little quote out of that book. And, um, you know, I mean, I know this is one of the use cases, kind of draw it out a little bit so people can understand how this works and what it can do. Yeah. Well, what you can do is say you've, you're reading a book, you want to share what it is that you're gleaning from that, what wisdom is in there. And so you suddenly happen upon a, a really great paragraph and especially one or two sentences really stand out. Well, you took your screenshot already while you were reading it. You go into one shot, select that image, and then you can crop and highlight right there in the app and even select the color of the highlight and properly you know, format it to whatever you want to do for Twitter and, and you can upload it as an image in there. But then you can also tweet out from one shot without having any of those characters that are part of that quote you want to share take up characters from your tweet. Well, okay, so my understanding is it's taking this graphic and knows what's text. It allows you to highlight the key key words as if you were really working with text. Um, And you can crop it on a can you annotate it and draw arrows and stuff, or is it just purely a highlighting function? It's purely a highlighting function. There's there's not a way to, say, point an arrow there. But again, that's what the highlight is for. You've already cropped it pretty well, and then you're even highlighting it down further to really draw attention to the specific lines of text. And my understanding is the app is smart and somehow it knows what the source of the screenshot was, right? So it'll link back. Yeah, it pulls in. It, it, it magically, as they describe it, finds the source URL, URL of your screenshot, and then it can attribute that as well in your tweet so that people, if they want to go click f- to, to read that article or read that book, that it's already going to help them be able to 
to go there. So in a sense, it's one part sharing tool and one part sharing slash curation helper tool. So the possible applications of this would be anybody reading a, a website, blog, article, or PDFs or eBooks of any kind, and they want to share just a little piece of that and highlight it all in one shot without having to worry about what the source is and share that out over their social networks. This is the tool that can do that. Is that a fair assessment? That That's a perfect assessment. Yeah, that's how I would describe it. Now, where do we find this thing and what's it called again? It's called OneShot and you can find it at oneshot.link. Eric Fisher, thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. Thanks. And with that, let's transition over to today's interview with Ted Wright. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Ted Wright. If you don't know who Ted is, he's the author of the book, Fizz, Harness the Power of Word of Mouth Marketing to Drive Brand Growth. He's also the founder of Fizz, an agency that specializes in word of mouth marketing. His clients include a lot of brands you're probably familiar with, including Intuit, Paps Blue Ribbon, Verizon, Intel, and many, many others. Ted, welcome to the show. Michael, I'm just thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have you. So, um, Ted, let's start with a little bit of your story. How did you get involved with word of mouth marketing? And feel free to go back as far as you want and kind of what got you here. So, I went to the University of Chicago for business school. And at that time, the computer lab was basically a windowless cave uh, with 20 rows of 20 computers each. Mm. And so one day early in the morning, I'm there and I'm working and the ambient light in the room, because there are no windows, is, uh, is basically blue. And it's blue because that was what the Netscape screen was mostly a blue screen. And that was the search engine. So this is 1999, back when... Everyone was trying to decide, Ask Jeeves or Netscape or writing your own Boolean code or whatever. So I'm 20, 30 minutes into working, and I'm, if everyone remembers the old Netscape, you know, you used to put in the search, and sometime around page eight of the search returns, you might get something of interest. And so I'm cussing at the inanimate object because, you know, that always works really well. <laughs> and somebody leans over and he says, Hey, what, um, why aren't you using Google? So I was a mathlete in high school, so I knew mathematically what a Google was, but I was unfamiliar with it. And so he you know, took 10 seconds and told me about it, and I went and tried it. And my search term, the thing I used, you know, how good is your search engine, was my mother's name. So my mother is Dr. Lynette Wright, and she's a fairly famous medical geneticist. But because we share the same last name as the guys who invented airplanes and a lot of other stuff, uh, search engines would get easily confused. So Google returned to my mother as the second search term, um, and instead of eight pages deep, which is generally what she was, mm. and I learned something new about her. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So 20 minutes, you know, I keep working, and 20 minutes later, the person to my left is, you know, having kind of the same problem I was, so I lean over and, five, and tell them, and they say, oh, thank you very much, and it's working for them. And then they lean back over and say, dude, this thing really works well. I'm like, I know, it's great. And four or five hours later, you know, I stand up, and I'm done right doing whatever work I was doing. And I look, and the light in the room has changed from ambient blue to ambient white, which, of course, is the Google screen. Huh. 
And I'm always looking at things and watching things and trying to figure out how things work. So I was like, that's really interesting. I remember this is the late 90s and TiVo was launched about 18 months before I started business school. So TV was a very big deal and how you were going to watch TV and what you're going to watch TV. So basically I watched Google and TiVo get adopted without any commercial anything. And I was like, that's fascinating. So Chicago is very gracious and that if you have a, an idea, they'll you know, give you enough rope to hang yourself or you know, make one of those beautiful hammocks out of. <laughs> and so I took advantage of that and took my second year and you know, blew apart the history and the math and the psychology and the epidemiology of word-of-mouth marketing. And graduated and did very well at B-School, and so I had a lot of options. And so, much to my wife's surprise, I bailed on all of the options and started my own thing, um, which 15 years ago was a rarity, to say the least. And that was a, that company, you know, is now referred to as Fizz, and that's what we do. Let's get to a lot of people listening right now might be saying, okay, you guys are throwing around this phrase, word of mouth marketing. Talk about what it is. So word of mouth marketing is simply this, identifying your influencers and uh, coming up with a story that is interesting, relevant, and authentic that ladders back to qualities of your brand and then sharing that story as much as possible. The other half, that's the first half of word of mouth marketing. The second half of word of mouth marketing is creating for your influencers as many opportunities as you can as a brand or a company for them, if they feel like it, to share your brand story with as many people as they would like to do so. All right. So lay it out a little bit. Talk about what you did for Pabst Blue Ribbon so people can kind of connect the dots. All right. So PBR and again, team effort. Uh, the brand manager at the time was a guy named Neil Stewart. Uh, without Neil, we would have been sunk. He is literally the finest natural marketing talent I've ever run into. I mean, he was 23 at the time, so he had not a whole lot of experience doing a whole lot of stuff, but he and I teamed up, and then there are other people that worked with us both, and it was really great. But basically what we did was we were assigned PBR uh, as uh, a thing. And basically the, the idea was, hey, you need to get more people in America to drink this. And so I knew that people shared stories and they shared stories a lot. And I had identified what I thought were the three critical components to a story being shared. And the three c- components are, is the story interesting to the influencer? So they will pick it up and they will study it and they will really understand it. Is it relevant to the influencer's audience? And is it authentic the way they currently understand either the brand or the category in general? And also, with all due respect to all the many men and women who brew Pabst Blue Ribbon, um, as a beer and as a thing to taste, it is not necessarily you know, the finest example or something that people are going to drink it and say, oh my goodness, I've just put this into my mouth. I have to run out and tell everybody else. There are other beers that are like that. Uh, PBR is very good for lots of other things, but we were never going to win on discussing only or talking only about what's going on inside the can. So Neil and I basically figured out that we needed to focus on what's going on outside the can. 
And at that same point, and so this is the year 2000. And so if you were born or 2000 and 2000, 2001, if you were born in 2000 in if you were of legal drinking age in 2001, that means you were born in 1980 or earlier. If you were born in 1980 or earlier, you had a significant chance that your parents were yuppies. Through the 80s and into, you know, the 90s, yuppieism at its extreme ends up being about things. Is it about being up things just to have things? And we knew this. And so the children of yuppies living that lovely time-worn tradition of thanking your parents for paying for college and paying for all your stuff by immediately upon graduation rejecting all of their stuff and being very active about that and having the big you know argument at Thanksgiving and you don't understand me, man. That was happening in 2000 and that political movement is what we now know as hipsterism. And hipsterism is basically a rejection of things and, uh, and, a, and a rising up of importance of experience. Or to put another way, in the way that Neil and I really thought about it, was we, are gonna, we as a brand are going to come in and celebrate those things that are people are doing because they want to be doing them, not because they want to be seen doing them. So being seen to do something, driving a particular car, parking it in the valet so everybody can see you get out of that car, wearing clothes with big shoulder pads or whatever. All of those things that were very 80s were all basically about being seen, about being noticed. Yep, hipsterism is almost the antithetical of that, which is we want to do stuff just because we want to do it. So, 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 so tell me this then. What did you guys end up doing to tap into this hipsterism for Pabst? So for us, so the activation was basically three rules. One, we're going to celebrate, and a celebrate is a crucial thing. Celebrate means showing up and finding out what's interesting and then saying as a brand, hey, that's pretty cool. And we sent people out. We, we, we found people that were very interested in these things, and we said, hey, we as a brand are really interested in these things too. What if we hire you to tell us about these cool things and to go to these cool events that you're going already to anyway. And if somebody asks you what you're doing, please feel free to talk about all of us at Paps Blue Ribbon. And the reason you want to talk to all of us about Paps Blue Ribbon is in the world of Bud Frogs and What's Up and the Chorus Twins campaign and all that 90s and sort of beer advertising, here is dorky old PBR sitting there and they're just making beer that quite honestly is a fine beer, but it is not going to be, you know, change anybody's life. But like, oh my God, this experience in this can is so awesome. I need to drink more of this, right? It just is what it is. And here's a company that was just making stuff because they wanted to be making it because they thought it was cool. And for years and years, Paps had not done any advertising. So we had some authority where we could just show up to events and talk to people. And eventually they would say they, the people that were involved in, I don't know, bicycle races or, or uh, you know, hipster bartender golf tournaments where everyone dresses, you know, very differently or uh, the band Mini Kiss. I don't know if your listeners know about them, but they are five men who love Kiss and they all happen to be less than four feet tall. Mm. And they're known as Mini Kiss. And why are they out there being Mini Kiss? Because they love Kiss music so much that they had to create a tribute band. And 
they were going to do it, whether or not anyone was paying them or not. And it's really sort of interesting to see them play because they're really, really good and they really love Kiss music. So we got involved with Mini Kiss and we got involved with them in such a way that is not about sponsorship. That's about, dude, we love what you're doing. We love that you love Kiss. We love Kiss. That seems awesome. Gene and everybody else always seem to be doing this just because they wanted to do it because they thought it was the right thing. So that's something that we can get behind. So we would find all of these experiences and all these things that matched up our ideal. And our ideal was, are you doing it because you want to be doing it or because you want to be seen doing it? So we just showed up at all these things where people were just doing this stuff. And it didn't really matter what they were doing. What mattered is they were passionate about it. So what did you guys bring the free beer or something? I mean, like what, you know, what help me understand, like what's the connection to Pabst? So here's the interesting thing. Most of the time we actually didn't bring beer because you legally can't bring beer to people. Most of the time we would just show up and there would be somebody and they would wear a Pabst shirt and, or they would have a Pabst hat on, or they might have nothing. And somebody would say, so what are you doing here? And then they would say, well, my job is to go to these things and talk to people. And they're like, well, what do you talk to them about? And they'd say, well, we talk to them about Paps Blue Ribbon. And they're like, really? Why is that? And we're like, because uh, that's what my job is, because we think what you're doing is cool because you're just doing it because you love it. Now, people that are doing things because they love it, they also enjoy other people who show up and say, oh, my gosh, I think that's super cool what you're doing. And so they would want to share the passion. So we as a brand were the first one out there that were really actively listening to people and actively curious about what they were doing without asking for anything in return. So it's kind of like dating, you know, when you're just cool and you're just sitting there and you don't really ask for anything in return, that allows the other person to say, oh, well, that's really interesting. Let me find out more about you. So eventually the question becomes, so what do you do? And you're like, well, I work for Paps Blue Ribbon. And they're like, so what is your job? This is my job. Your job is to go around finding stuff that you think is cool and just talking to people or just attending things? Like, yes, that is so cool. How do I get to have that job? Not only how do I get to that job, but then I as a person who is interested in doing stuff just because I want to be doing things, not because I want to be seen doing them, immediately glom onto that brand because we as a brand were just out there doing stuff. We didn't need anything from anybody. We didn't ask for anything from anybody. We were just there. And sometimes it was hard, especially in the later years when we're very active and people are like, go, go, go. You know, we're growing 300% a month. They're like, how can we grow 600% a month? And so, again, to the CEO, Brian Kovalchuk, he was very good. And he said, look, we're going to give these boys enough room. And when, if they make a mistake, we'll come in. But until they make a mistake, we're just going to give them their lead, which is why we were able to work for years and years on that. So, so what, the what, yeah, what, was the, what was the ultimate um, outcome? I mean, like, you guys did all this work for Pabst. And how did it end up help, helping the business, in your opinion? Um, so, well, let's see. Fast Company just did an article, and they just said that we were Pabst Blue Ribbon was the number six ranked turnaround. Apple was number one, was the number sixth ranked turnaround in the last 20 years. Wow. So what we did was we took the brand from so little volume that was hard some months for the people who track that kind of stuff to actually know how little we were selling to – you know, the biggest brand in its category. And then eventually, you know, within five years, one of the biggest brands in America. Very cool. Social media obviously wasn't around in the early days when you were doing this and today it is. Um, make the connection between word of mouth marketing in why it's important in an age of social media. 
So I'm not, all right, so I know I'm on Social Media Examiner, but let me just say, I do not believe this is the age of social media. I believe this is the age of conversation, right? And I believe that social media tools are a very important part of that conversation. I think there's a lot of that conversation that is also face-to-face. So I think about marketing and marketers as plumbers, and they have a lot of tools in their toolbox, and depending on what the problem is, they're going to use a particular set of, of skills and a particular set of tools. So in the beginning, what was really interesting about social media is it made it very easy for people to understand just how much conversation about how many different things were going on. You know, oh, do you like blue dogs? I like blue tick hound dogs. Let's go on Twitter for hashtag blue tick hound dogs. And you see all these conversations. Or let's go on Facebook and you can find all these people. Or let's go on all of these different tools. So for me, for and for word of mouth marketing, all of the tools in social media are tools that are very important in order to keep the conversation going. And what's interesting is that when you get the face-to-face working with the social media tools, that's what happens when one plus one equals three, because neither of them by themselves work nearly as well as they do in combination. Let's say that I'm a business uh, or I'm obviously working for a business you know, I'm thinking about the listeners that are listening right now. And um, wh- where do we start? How do we get other people talking about whatever our story is? So the first thing, no matter what tool we're going to use, Snapchat, face-to-face, whatever it is we're going to use, right? The first thing you have to say is, what is our story, right? And you have to really, and, and the, again, the story has three parts. It's interesting to the influencer. It's relevant to the influencer's audience. And it's authentic to the way they really want to talk about the, either the brand or the category in general. The other test you have to put yourself through is what we refer to in the office as the brunch test. And in the brunch test, it can be a mind game or mind experiment, or you can actually go out to brunch with people. And in, but in the mind experiment, you know, close your eyes and think you and your significant other at a brunch, and there's two other couples, one you know pretty well and one you don't. When you start sharing your brand story, in your mind, do you see everybody leaning forward? Do you see people asking you questions? Or, is, or in your mind, is it possible or, or potentially pretty absolutely is going to happen is that your significant other is kicking you under the table because somehow you're boring. Somehow everyone's thinking, why did we bring the baby wipe salesman to brunch with us? Why didn't we pick, you know, somebody else? Mm. Right. And that is one of, that is one of the tests for interesting. And one of the reasons that we try and get people to take in their mind and play that sort of mind experiment is that there's a lot of things that companies do, small companies, large companies, whatever, that's very important within those four walls. And it's very important within those four walls because it's very difficult to do because it's, it's, it took a lot of effort to get your boss to say, yes, we can put polar bears on the side of the Coca-Cola can. And so when Coca-Cola then goes out there and talks about all that stuff and they're like, yay, it turns out very few people actually care about polar bears and, and cold polar bears in relationship to what soda they're going to drink. 
And so while it's really fun and all the rest of this stuff, if you pull the IRI data for Coca-Cola and you say, look at all this work we did, how many extra Cokes did we sell versus what we're going to do for plan, you know, the IRI numbers uh, was answer is it wasn't much. And so that's why you big companies, little companies have to always be thinking, what is my story? And is my story interesting, relevant, and authentic? The second thing that everybody needs to be thinking about is answering this question, how do I identify my influencers? Right? That's a question we get a lot. Yeah, let's, let, let's, is, talk, yeah let's talk about that. How do you identify them? Because I think that's a big challenge a lot of people you know, struggle with. To- totally big challenge. You don't, in, you don't identify your influencers. Your, ident- your influencers identify themselves to you. And why are, why are influencers going to identify themselves to you? Because influencers have three particular personality traits that are dominant within them. Among all their other traits, they have three in particular that are paramount. They like to try new things because they're new. They like to share stories with their friends. And they're intrinsically motivated. Because they like to share stories with their friends, they are always swimming around in the sea of commercial information looking for bits and pieces of stories of things that interest them. On average in the United States, an influencer is, is influential in three categories or fewer. So while I may be really influential about cars, I may not be influential about cell phones because I don't really care about cell phones. I just really want it to work. Other people, I know there's this guy who works for me, Dude, he's always about the latest and greatest. And the reason he's about the latest and greatest is he just happens to like him. So he's out there sucking in all this information. He's curating it for me. So the one time every three years I go to him and say, dude, what new phone should I use? He tells me what it is, and that's the phone I use. And what's interesting about influencers are that they have such trust with the people that they talk to that that single conversation because an average word of mouth conversation is only 32 seconds long so there's a bunch of trust and there's a bunch of information that's communicated within that 20 percent of everything that is sold in the u.s is sold solely and only because of that conversation okay so i just want to pause here for a second um obviously if influencers are going to come to you or they're going to be self-motivated essentially to you know share your story. I think it begs the question, how do they find your story in the first place, right? Right. So you need so the first thing you need to do is you need to think about, okay, who do I think is potentially going to be most interested in my story? And let's just say I'm selling diapers because that's really easy to understand. All right. So uh, parents with um, with kids that are under five. Okay, voila, that's who needs that's who needs kids' diapers. And then you look at that a little tighter and you say, okay, well, the buying decision for those diapers is 85% women, 15% men. Okay. And so we're like, all right, so I'm looking for women that have kids in their house under five. And then you can continue to break that down. And once you get your sort of this is what my person looks like, then you ask yourself this question: where do these people co-locate physically and virtually? And when you go figure that out, then you ask yourself, I've got this great story. I know where these people co-locate. I know where they gather physically, and I know where they gather virtually. How can I as a brand go be there? What tactics do I need to use to go be there? 
and be there in such a way that doesn't interrupt people for what they're doing while they're there because nobody's going there to talk to us about diapers. And I also don't want to intercept people. I don't want to put my needs in between my potential consumer's needs and whatever their goal was to being there. So when you come up with that activation and you have that goal and you have that target, you've got the three points of a triangle and that is the three points of word of mouth marketing. Okay, so um, just to review, the first point was the story. The second point was the influencers, right? And what was the third point again? Where they are? Going where they are? So, exactly. Okay. So it is where do they we, – we like for us, we like the – there's a fancy term. We like the idea of co-locate because it also gets to the point of where do they gather together. And I'll give you an example. We worked for a company called Bissell. And they make a little sweeper that if you've ever worked in a restaurant or been at a restaurant in closing time, you see it's the one that people roll around on the floor. Right. Right. It turns out that that sweeper is the greatest thing in the world for picking up really super annoying things in your home. In particular, three super annoying things. One, the little tiny Lego piece that you get you step on in the middle of the night. And for all those people who are listening out there who are Lego parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't know, it means that you don't have kids or your kids aren't Lego kids. But for those of us who have Lego or are Lego parents, the little tiny pieces all get stuck in the carpet somewhere or on the floor. And that's the thing you step on at two o'clock in the morning and it like pierces right into your foot. <laughs> it yep. turns out that this is really a great thing to pick up. It also turns out that the Bissell Sweeper is really great for picking up pine needles. Why is that important? Christmas. January is the, yep. yes, exactly. Christmas. And then also January, because January is the number one month for people to replace their vacuum cleaner because they ruin it in December. Because when a pine needle falls off of the tree, it shrinks a little bit. That sap comes out, they stick together, and that noise that gets made, okay, that's the motor in your vacuum cleaner burning up because all this stuff is clumped together and there's no air getting through there and it's overtaxing the motor. All right, so for Bissell, we have figured all these things out. Now the question becomes, if we're looking for Lego parents, because we are going to solve a problem for them. Actually, we're going to solve two problems. One, you don't stab yourself in the middle of the night. Two, um, if you're a Lego parent, you also know this to be true. Darth Vader cannot have a red lightsaber blade. It has to be a purple lightsaber blade. If Darth Vader doesn't have a purple lightsaber blade, then the world is going to end if you're four and a half or to six and you really love these things. So having some other vacuum cleaner that, you know, six times gravity and it's cyclotron 6000 breaks or ruins this thing or bends it and then you can't use it anymore and there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Bissell picks it up and it just kicks up right at the very top of it and you can see it and you can just reach down there and pick it up and say, here you go. And then boom, there you have it. So now the question becomes, where do you find Lego parents? So you can find Lego parents if you go knock on every door, you know, in the United States, you'll eventually find them all, but that's really expensive and takes a long time. Or you could go to Legoland in San Diego. <laughs> you can go to Legoland in San Diego, but okay, so here's the problem with Legoland in San Diego or the Lego store. Nobody is going there to talk to you about a sweeper. Good point. And nobody is just very little of the time at these theme parks is spent just standing around 
where you're waiting around looking for something to do. Right. And oh, by the way, you'd also have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to these third-party licensees that own these things to be able to come on grounds and sell something. Right. So it's expensive and it's a problem. So we found a third-party vendor who was out there who had come up with something called the Lego Kids Fest. What is the Lego Kids Fest? It is this guy and his company, and they haul around 1.2 billion Lego bricks. They go into these secondary markets all across the United States. They rent out the local arena when nobody else is using it, which you can rent, by the way, for the weekend for like $8,000, which is crazy little money. Huh. And they tell all the Lego parents, hey, if you want to bring Junior and all of his friends and the siblings down, we will sell you a four-hour block of time to play within this huge pile of Legos, a pile of Legos that the size of it you'll never see again for, you know, like eight bucks a kid and parents get in free. So you push 40,000 kids through one of these things in a weekend. And what do we know about eight-year-olds? They generally don't travel without their parents. And so you've got a whole, you've got 40,000 kids over a weekend, which means you have about 32,000 parents. It turns out only about 10% of the parents actually play in the Legos. All the rest of them are surrounding the big pile, making sure their kid doesn't get hurt or kidnapped or taken up by space aliens or whatever they're doing. So what if in this same adventure, you realize that it, the little tiny pieces, when you're in a big pile and kids jump on them, the little tiny pieces like go eventually all the way out to the wall, right? So there's a little tiny piece all over the place. What if you take interesting people, not like beautiful people, not like model people, but just like regular people, put them in a Bissell t-shirt and just start sweeping up the pieces and then walking by the parents and taking them out of the Bissell sweeper and putting them back in the pile? And what if you just keep going back and forth? Well, it becomes very interesting because you know you've got about 30,000 parents there. You know that 10% of any population is going to be an influencer. So you know you'll have 3,000 by the math. You'll have at least 3,000 influencers come in, and you know that an influencer shares their story. An influencer's story will get shared in excess of 40,000 times within that person's social network within a year. So you just sweep back and forth, and because influencers are always seeking stories for their friends, eventually they will walk up to you, the little person sweeping, and they will say, what are you doing? And then that's your magic moment. You're like, well, I'm sitting here picking up sweep Bissell. I'm using the Bissell sweeper to pick up these Lego pieces. And they say, oh, really, how does it work? And then you get into a little two-minute conversation, three-minute, maybe three-minute conversation. And then eventually that influencer goes back to the pod of parents that they're hanging out with. And then one of those parents will say, oh, so what were they doing over there, right? Because they're just sitting around watching their kids. They're just standing around waiting for this four-hour time to expire so their kid like comes out of the pile. And the story gets shared, and eventually more parents come over there, and eventually their kids come over there and say, Mommy, what's going on? And she's like, well, she's picking up things with a sweeper. And they, the kids say, oh, can I try that? And the person with, standing there with the Bissell sweeper and the Bissell t-shirt says, sure, you can try that. And about two hours into the weekend, we would generally have about 30 kids lined up. Now, remember, I've got 1.2 billion Legos sitting right there. And we would have kids that would create a self-policing line and, quote, wait their turn to use the Bissell sweeper to clean up little pieces of stuff that were flying around the room and go put it back in the pile. Very cool.
What are some of the big mis- what's what's the biggest mistake um, that you see a lot of people doing when it comes to word of mouth marketing, like the kind of stuff that makes you want to just like pull your hair out of your head? Said another way, you know, there's people listening right now that are going to go out and experiment with this and get in, inspired by your your stories. And um, what's some words of wisdom you might want to give to them so they can avoid the crazy pitfalls that you've seen others do? So, Michael, I think the the I think the same thing for word of mouth happens for social media. That people have been, you know, senior leadership and companies have been raised in a time when broadcast really worked. And that was and that was pretty much all you needed to do in whatever format it was. And we could go and buy a bunch of ads and six weeks later they we'd sell a lot more stuff and it was great. The world doesn't work like that in North America anymore. It just doesn't. We've moved on. In the age of conversation, consumers are deciding when they're going to do something and how they're going to get their information. And if you are not delivering it that way, they'll go find somebody else who either will deliver it that way or they change or they change the way they're going to go get their information. So the biggest pitfall is thinking that the speed of which word of mouth is going to be adopted or social media is going to be able to move markets is the same as broadcast, right? It is not 1956. It is also not 1974 or not 1986 anymore. The ability for broadcast to actually move markets in the vast majority of product categories in the United States is not nearly what it it used to be. And for some things, it's not really working at all anymore this is why newspapers are going out of business or much smaller because newspaper ads just don't work anymore because nobody's, nobody's reading the paper like that and a newspaper ad isn't getting people to do stuff. So the biggest pitfall that I see is not being upfront with leadership at the very beginning saying, this is how much time it takes. I know that is different, but, you ha- but this is the reason why it takes that much time. What, what, is a re- is- what is a reasonable amount of time for someone to expect to you know, start to see kind of the needle move when it comes to word-of-mouth marketing? So you will see movement in the first 10 weeks. You will see significant movement in the first 30 weeks. Significant like, hey, man, this is pretty cool. Like your head of sales for your company – calls somebody else and he says some ver- he or she says some version of this. I don't know what you're doing because I don't really understand that meeting that we were at nine months ago, but whatever you're doing, it's working because my sales team is saying there are places that I haven't been able to get into in like six months and now they're calling me because they heard from their friend, blah, blah, blah about this. Or you start seeing why are we selling? Why are we selling out in Walmart's all across the you know the Rocky Mountain Plain states? What well, just happened to be that you got lucky and you got enough influencers in one place at one time that is taken off in Denver and Greater Denver and the rest of the American Plain states faster than it took off in Dallas. It could have easily been Dallas. And then by the end of the first year of doing this program, besides, they're not very expensive to do, right? I mean, it's it's you know, one an entire year's worth of word of mouth marketing covering the whole country costs less than one flight of television ad buying time for one sh- for one network TV show. So by the end of the first year, what you've got going on is you've got significant sales lift. And you've got the other cool thing that happens is it all 
is very organic. So that spread rate becomes, it continues to increase and your marketing spend stays fairly stable. So for the mathematically inclined in the audience, what you start to get is a pretty big delta. You start to have a really large gap between the amount of money we're making in sales and the amount of marketing money that costs to maintain that sales. So you know, by month 10, nobody really cares about measurement anymore because they're measuring on the most important thing, which is an increase in sales. And so when you're up 15 or 20% in a year, and you're up another 25% the next year, which happens a lot in word of mouth, no matter what it is that you're working on, and it can be even bigger than that. So it sounds you start. Yeah, it's, ahead, it Mike. sounds like the it sounds like the the key to all this is having some sort of a catalyst, right? You need some sort of. I mean, in these stories that you've been sharing, there is somebody going somewhere or or presenting themselves to the right community with the right activity or story and with the hope that a um, audience that is influential or a subsegment of the master audience that is influential will find what they're doing to be so unique and valuable that they will start organically sharing that story with people that they know and then it kind of spreads. I mean, is that kind of, I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing, but is, is that kind of the magic behind the whole thing is having that that key catalyst you know, that, that's able to do that activity or share that story. And then it just kind of slowly but surely starts expanding almost like a virus over the whole country or the whole region you're trying to, or the whole community that you're trying to essentially communicate to. So it does expand at that rate. Privately, I hired an epidemiology team that used to work at CDC and they were the one that tracked down the SARS virus. And they basically tracked how conversation spreads in the United States. And they used PBR and two other clients that we had at the time to really make a map of how that spreads. And it spreads exactly like you see one of those contagion movies and where they have the map and in 48 hours it's like this and then in three months it's a zombie apocalypse. Right? That is exactly what happens with word of mouth. And you're right, the catalyst you have to have Somehow you have to convey the story, and that is whatever tool. It is people, it is it is tchotchke, it is swag, it is social media tools. There's all kinds of different things that you can use. The question you have to ask yourself is what is going to be the most effective at creating the most conversations in the shortest amount of time? Well, Ted, um, this has been fascinating, first of all, uh, to really kind of get underneath the whole how all this word of mouth marketing stuff works. I know you've written an excellent book on the topic. Why don't you tell people where they can find your book, Fizz, and where they can discover more about you? So thanks, Michael. So uh, Fizz is available on Amazon. Uh, yay. Uh, it's in the top 10% of all books that are being sold right now. So we're very excited about that. So thanks to my team for that. It's also available at your local independent bookstore. We're real fans of indie bookstores. So if you have a local bookstore, go ask for it. If they don't have it, they would love, love, love to order it for you. So indie bookstores. And um, Fizz, you know, basically just Google Fizz and word of mouth, or you can just go right to fizzcore.com, F-I-Z-Z-C-O-R-P.com. Uh, and you can find us, and we love what we do, and if you love what you do, we'd love to talk to you about it if you think what we do is cool. Ted Wright, author of the book Fizz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's interview. Just a couple quick updates for you. First of all, if you want to reach out to me directly, podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com goes directly to my inbox. Also, if there was anything that we mentioned in today's show and you just didn't catch it, don't worry. We take all the notes for you. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 143. That stands for episode 143. Also, if you're new to the show and you're not already a subscriber to this free podcast, hit that darn subscribe button. That way you know you'll never miss a future episode of the show. If you like the show, would you help us get the word out? Socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. We'll put a tweet into your Twitter stream and it works on your mobile phone saying you recommend the show. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week in the driver's seat. I hope you make the absolute best out of your week and your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner.